Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Nick Davenport, aka Mr. Mental Muscle. And today we have the episode of the Mental Muscle Podcast with Dr. Ryan Sherman. He's a great friend of mine, someone I've worked with as a student as well as a colleague, and I'm excited to have him on. I'll let him get a little introduction about himself and we'll get right into it as he talks about personality, how it applies to work, school, sport, and so much more. So, Ryan, let's get into it. Uh, hey, Nick. Uh, thanks so much for having me on the podcast. Uh, yeah, a little bit about myself. Uh, as you mentioned, I was a professor for uh, seven years teaching psychology, business psychology, personality psychology mainly um, at Florida Atlantic and uh, Texas Tech Universities. And uh, in the last, for the last six years, I've been the chief science officer at Hogan Assessment Systems. Hogan Assessments is a global provider of personality assessments for uh, personnel selection, but also for leadership development. And that, that's a big part of what we do is help uh, companies uh, develop their leaders into uh, stronger leadership candidates a as they uh, progress throughout their careers. And uh, as the chief science officer, I, I um, am in charge of all of our assessment processes. So everything uh, about our personality assessment items, the testing, the psychometrics, all of that kind of stuff falls under my department. Nice. And that's pretty cool because I've followed your work, obviously, as a student. But even since then, I've seen all you've been doing. I've watched some YouTube videos of you inputting your information to the world on how we can use this to perform. And that's what I'm big on, obviously, you know, my background. So the first thing I want to start off with is a pretty much, I guess, question you've probably heard a million times. But I'm going to ask it because there might be someone out there that does not know. But what is personality? A lot of people <laughs> talk about, I want someone with a nice personality or a good personality. But what is personality as a construct, I guess, from academic standpoint, but to the lay person? Yeah, so um, uh, I, th I do think when most people talk about personality in terms of um, from a lay person standpoint, they're really tend to be talking about things like particular aspects of what academics would call personality. And I can get into that here in a second. But when, when academics talk about personality, we're generally talking about some pattern of behavior, uh, thinking, and emotions that individuals show, right? So it's the idea that, that all of us are individuals and all of us show different patterns of thinking, behaving, and feeling um, throughout our lives. And those patterns show up across time and context. So in different, different situations, different circumstances that we're in, we still kind of have a tendency to behave in certain ways that are sort of much more like ourselves than they are like somebody else. And, and that's what we really mean when we're talking about personality, those sort of consistent tendencies, those ways that we want to behave, think, and feel. Um, when academic psychologists study personality, most academic psychologists think about personality psychology from what is known as a trait perspective, which is this idea that you have these personality traits and these personality traits are sort of your makeup of your personality. And so when lay people talk about personality, I tend to think that they're tended to be thinking about certain personality traits. So when they say, well, I'm looking for somebody with a good personality, I think typically what they mean is somebody who's nice and agreeable and easy mm -hmm. to get along with, which is a certain set of personality traits. Um, but I, but for the most part, uh, academic psychologists study personality from this trait perspective. Uh, it's a little, uh, offbeat um, in, in some respects, because uh, in, in my own work, the own work that I do, the work that we do at Hogan Assessments, we tend to think of personality um, as much more reputationally based. So where the trait perspective really thinks of personality as being something that lives inside of you that causes you to go out and do things. Um, I'm not sure I think that perspective makes a lot of sense. And if we want to, we can talk about why that is the case. Um, but really, I think a much better way of thinking about personality is that uh, it's really about your reputation. It's about the things that you have done in the past and that you're more likely to continue doing in the future. 
And I'm sort of agnostic as to why you do those things, right? I assume you have motives. I assume you have agendas. I assume you have goals that you're trying to pursue. Um, but I'm not so convinced that we all have insight into why we do the things that we do all the time. In fact, that's what Freud uh, was all about, was this notion that we don't always have this insight into what we're trying to do, whereas the trait perspective really believes that individuals have this insight into what they're trying to do and, and that personality is something that lives inside them. Uh, I think the personality is something that more or less lives in the minds of the people who see us, the people who know us and interact with us. And they, and they say, well, that's what you're like, because that's what we've seen you do. Yeah, I 100% agree with that, because for the longest, I looked at it as well from the trait perspective. And as working with you and just reading more and learning more, I can see that that makes a lot of sense because our actions and behaviors are really dictated about the outcomes and performance we we get. So it's like, if this is not showing in real time, what does it truly mean? So with that being said, how do we measure personality? I know there's the traditional ones that have been around since like the 1930s, 40s, something like say mm -hmm. the Myers-Briggs. I, I want to say that's probably the most well-known, not saying the most mm -hmm. accurate. I, you can maybe correct me, but I know like say for example, I know dating apps are big on using those. I know some mm -hmm. job selections use the Myers-Briggs and the little information I have about it, I learned that it wasn't even made by psychologists. It was more so two women who were fans of uh, Carl Jung and then they just kind of ran with some of his thoughts, let alone actual data or statistics. So we can guess talk a little bit about is that relative or relevant, I should say, to efficient results and sure. other measures? Obviously, you have plenty that you use with Hogan. Yeah. So uh, th there's actually a lot of ways to measure personality, to assess personality. In fact, we sort of assess personality all the time with this sort of everyday personality assessment. If you meet somebody, you talk to somebody for a little while, you're actually evaluating them and making assessments of what they're like. Now, these aren't really objective, quantifiable assessments in some sense, but you are sort of making an assessment. Um, but there's other kinds of assessments that psych psychologists have used. Um, projective tests, the sort of classic things that you might see in TV shows and movies where somebody you know, um, maybe uh, it's like a word association. If I give you a word and you say something and the idea is that that means something about your personality, I can show you images and pictures and I can see what you write about those images and pictures and with the notion that that says something about your personality. And so there's a whole lot of ways we can assess personality, but by far overwhelmingly, the most used way to assess personalities with what's called a self-report assessment. And that's where I give you a series of questions and you answer those questions and you tell me, um, and based on your answers to those questions, we might measure things like agreeableness, like conscientiousness, like extroversion. Um, in the case of the Myers-Briggs, you, you, you measure the things on the Myers, like thinking versus feeling, right? You measure um, extroversion, introversion, you measure those sorts of, of things with those, um, with those items. But the idea there is very simple. It, much like the projective test, I'm giving you some stimulus, some item, and I'm seeing how you respond to that with the notion that some people respond one way and some people respond a, a, another way. So very simple. I can give you a, a very simple personality item uh, like um, it's important to keep things neat and tidy. There's no right or wrong answer to this kind of question, right? Some people could say, yes, that is important. And some people could say, no, that's not very important. But the idea is that that difference in perception, that that difference in how we see and think about the world uh, reflects differences in how we behave, think, and feel. And that goes back to what we talked about earlier in terms of how, how we're going to behave in the future. People who think things that should be neat and tidy, though, well, they tend to have neat and tidy spaces. They tend to clean their rooms. They tend to make their beds. Uh, they tend to be, but there's other things that, that are maybe not so obvious, right? They also tend to be on time for meetings, which I think is kind of interesting, right? Whereas people who don't think things need to be so neat and tidy tend to not be. So, so that's where personality really comes in and personality assessment comes in. 
Um, in terms of the Myers-Briggs, uh, it, it does get a whole lot of criticism, particularly from academic psychologists. In fact, I think that criticism is probably overdone. The, the main criticism against the Myers-Briggs is actually, uh, I think there's really only two. Uh, one is that it's a typology, right? Which means that you're either an extrovert or an introvert. You're either a thinker or a feeler. I think I'm getting those right. I might be mixing some of those up. They're perceiving or a judger, right? You're one or the other. And then based on that combination of uh, four different uh, traits of either you're being high or low on either of those, there's 16 possible uh, personality types in the Myers-Briggs framework. Uh, the problem with that is that um, what we know about behavior, human behavior, if we plot all the humans onto, onto sort of a, a normal distribution of, of, of how people behave, um, uh, most people fall in the middle. And so one of the problems with these kind of assessments is that if, if you know, if you fall in like the 55th percentile on, on uh, thinking versus feeling, um, the next time you take the assessment, they're not perfect, right? That sometimes you might answer the question in just a little bit slightly different way. Much like if you went in and got your blood pressure taken, it won't be exactly the same blood pressure every time. It'll be close, but it's not exactly the same. And we see the same thing with, uh, with personality assessments. So the next time you take it, you might be in the 45th percentile, but in the Myers-Briggs uh, world, it either says you're high or low. So if you're at the 55th percentile one time, and the next time the 45th, you're going to get a totally different personality type the next time you go in. So that's a real problem with that sort of typological framework. The second issue with the Myers-Briggs is that it has completely gotten rid of the, the personality trait. It, it doesn't measure it um, of neuroticism, but it really measures four of the big five. And, and the big five for, for, for your listeners are the most common personality traits. These are five personality traits that show up in all kinds of cultures all over the world, extroversion, conscientiousness, agreeableness, openness, and neuroticism. And the Myers-Briggs does measure those first four, but it doesn't measure that last one, partly because a lot of neuroticism is about our proneness for stress, uh, our tendency towards a depressive kind of symptoms, and it doesn't really make people feel that good to, to get a high score on neuroticism. And so one of the things the Myers-Briggs says is, let's just forget about that one. Let's just not assess that one. Let's just assess the other four, and then we can build our typology from there. And so that's another issue I have with the Myers-Briggs is that it really misses a really core component of personality that we know is really essential to, to everyday behaving. And so outside of that, though, I think the Myers-Briggs gets a whole lot of unfair criticism as being unscientific. It's not really unscientific. The only things that are kind of unscientific is it's skipping neuroticism and, and that it's, it's using a typological framework. But look, it really depends on what your goal is. If your goal is to, uh, to predict job performance, to see, figure out who's going to be good at this job or that job, the Myers-Briggs is terrible for that. But they're also quite clear about that. It shouldn't be used for that kind of thing, right? On their own website, they say, this is not what this tool is for. If your goal is to have some really basic understanding of personality, if you really want a simplified view of the world, which that's what the Myers-Briggs give you with four traits and 16 types, um, if you want to just understand each other and how you might be different in, in some kind of a workplace context, maybe a team context, the Myers-Briggs is actually quite convenient for that. Like I said, it's very simple. You, you, don't, um, you don't need a, a lot of complexity to sort of understand what's going on there. And so there can be real advantages to using the Myers-Briggs in, in those kind of contexts. Now, let me just add that in my own work and the own work that we do at Hogan, you know, personality, the reality is that personality is actually quite complex. It's not as simple as the Myers-Briggs would have us think it is. Um, 
And if you want to embrace that complexity, if you really want to select people for jobs, if you want to get serious about your own personal development, then you do need to use an assessment that goes a bit deeper, that is a bit more complex, like, like the assessments that we use at Hogan. Well, I think that goes to why I had some criticism for all that you said about the Myers-Briggs. I, I was guilty of being one of those people, but not to the point of like, throw it away. But the fact that it did lead to the everyday person thinking you're one or the other. So that's kind of why, like you said, that typology that there's such more nuance and complexity to how we behave and how it affects our day-to-day -day life. Because I know a few, we get more into this later about like situations like who am I when I'm performing in a sport? And, you know, I talk a lot about athletic identity and that's part of what I think started the study we did together. But basically you might be this type of person, but it's not saying that you're all or nothing. And that, that was my biggest beef of that whole all or nothing. And I kind of see that going in hand to hand, I think, because it agrees with other types of, I won't call them personality theories, but I don't know how to label them, but let's say it's things like astrology or mm -hmm. um, have you heard of the five love languages? No, uh, yeah, yeah. So I put them in the same category. I don't know a lot about them. I don't personally study astrology or the five love languages, but I know enough that I see that people put that same type all or nothing. If I'm a Gemini, I don't know what traits go with that, but they'll say this, this, and this. But then again, if you were born in November, uh, which is Scorpio, only reason I know that because that's my birthday is November 3rd, but it's basically like, but I have those traits too. So what does that say? And I actually did a, a funny experiment with one of my classes when I taught at Broward College, where I only put six of the months that correlated with the different uh, signs. And I had each person go through and see what traits and they would mark which ones correlated. And the funny thing was when I revealed after they did it, that only six of the months were included, it blew a lot of their minds. And the ones who really believed in it even got mad. It's like, well, you know, there's different types of signs and moon signs. And I'm like, okay, so let's move the goalposts now. And, and it's like mm -hmm. getting into the point of, going to like jump over to the five love language is kind of the same. My love language is giving gifts or receiving gifts or giving affection or, or like what, like, let's be realistic. You're married. And it's like, you probably say, I kind of do all of those things and vice versa. My wife does all of those things. Right. right. So it's kind of putting this box on how personality is just as one size fits all, or you just nothing at all, you know? Yeah. Well, I think one issue with, personality assessments as an industry um, is that uh, basically anybody can make a personality assessment. It doesn't take much. You don't need any advanced degree. Anybody can write one. Now, I didn't say anybody can make a good one. I didn't say anybody can make a high quality one, but anybody can make one and anybody can sell one. So in the United States, if you wanted to make a new drug for something, you have to go through a whole long approval process through the FDA and get that drug approved. No such uh, a body exists for, for personality assessments. So anybody can make one. Anyone can start selling them. And unfortunately, there is a lot of that. And part of that, what that relies on is something called the Barnum effect, which is this idea that, you know, if somebody starts to say, there's a whole bunch of these online, right, where you can type in your name, type in your name, right? So you type in Nick or, or Nicholas, and it says, oh, Nicholas, uh, Nicholas is defined uh, as someone who's strong and willing to stand their ground and fight for their principles. And, and that's what, you know, and that's really the core of, of who you are. And it, it'll say things like that. And they always say things that sort of sound mostly positive, um, that, uh, that pretty much everyone will agree with and go, yeah, I do stand my ground and I do stand up for what I think is right. And, and things like that. And, um, people will, will sort of fall in love with those things. They'll say that these things really work because look how well it got me not realizing that it's not really getting them in particular. It's just sort of saying things that people like to hear about themselves. 
Um, and so there's a lot of assessments out there like that that will just sort of tell you things that you might like to hear about yourself. And, and, and even if it's not particular to you, uh, that, that make, will make you think the assessments really work. There's one that I saw, I forget exactly what the measure was. It, it was something along with colors or something like that. And it told you if you were left brain or right brain. And that's a whole other topic of, you know, <laughs> people say if you're left brain, you're more, which was it creative. And if you're right brain, you're more concrete. I, I might've got right. that backwards, but we obviously know both hemispheres work in different ways, but they also work interchangeably. So it's like, you you know, going back to the common everyday person, that's one of my biggest uh, gripes with the that industry is like, it's giving this information because I've had students say, you only use 10% of your brain or this stuff, but going back to that assessment and I saw a lot of people, it went viral. Like people were sharing it for months and it was like, I don't remember exactly the parameters, but it had to do with something with picking certain colors. And, and then it told you what side of your brain and it was like, oh, I'm left brain, meaning I'm creative and this and this. And now it's going to, like you say, serving to, it's positive because going back to the Myers-Briggs, right? The fact that there is no neuroticism, you need to know how well you adapt to stress. Because I would argue, whether it be job, sport, school, I think that will dictate, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, more so how you will handle adversity and perform well. Obviously, you still need the other traits like conscientiousness, sure. being organized. But it's like, I would say that is a big factor of if you're going to sure. execute if you're able to handle the stress or you're over worrier when it's not that bad and vice versa. Yeah, that that's totally the case. Totally agree. Yeah. So I want to get into a little bit also with a question that I get asked all the time as well. And I know you can ask this better than me. Can personality change? And when I personally answer it, I give this answer of, cause you know, to say it's constant to degrees and, but going back to different behaviors, we implement different behaviors all the time. So I always answer it kind of with you have a default mode kind of, but it's like, you're going to have that depending on the situation, you can change it, but who you are from the default standpoint is probably going to be your first response. Like if I'm say introverted, it doesn't mean I can't give a speech. I'm actually pretty introverted. And most people don't believe me because I'm all over social media, but that's the only time they really see me. 90% of the time I'm by myself chilling, but basically I know that I can go give a speech, but when I'm done, I'm like, okay, I need to take a minute. So it's like, is it changeable, I guess is the question. And yeah. if it is, how so? So so there's a couple of components there. So so one point of confusion that I think people run into a lot when they think about personalities, they think that personality is saying that people are fixed all the time and they always behave in the same way no matter what. And that's actually not true. There's a bunch of research. I've done some research. Other people have done research showing that uh, if we take like a, a scale of extroversion from one to 100, uh, almost everybody, no matter whether you're extrovert or an introvert, at some point in time in different situations behaves the entire range of the scale. In some situations, you're a one. In some situations, you're a hundred. What really defines your personality as an extrovert or an introvert is the way that you tend to lean, right? That in most situations, you tend to be closer to a one or in most situations, you tend to be closer to a hundred. And so people, you can think about it like a density distribution with some people, they maybe their, their mean is around a 75, which means they mostly are towards the high end of the extroversion scale, but even sometimes they're at the one. And other people might have a mean of a 25, meaning that mostly they're close to those ones in that introverted side of the scale, but even those folks at sometimes are a hundred. So the point is that, that people can behave the entire range of behavioral uh, personality characteristics at any time. Uh, what, what personality really is defining is that 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 mean, that average, the way that you tend to behave. Um, if we didn't know any other information, right? If we just had to guess, what would we guess? That's what your personality is. 
But a bigger question, a part of that is, is about personality change. Can we sort of change that mean? Can we sort of change the way we tend to act? Um, and the answer is partly yes and partly no, right? So a couple of things that, that we know about. Uh, to the degree to which personality is 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 related to our biology, that's a that's a part that's um, in some respects difficult to change, but in some respects very changeable, right? So um, there's been lots of classic studies on personality change, looking at actual biological change. So if you are struck with something like if you, the, the classic study of a person getting a railroad spike through the brain and how that's changed the way they behave, their their, their self control, those kinds of things. So. Actual physical biological change can, in some respects, change the way we think, feel, and behave. It's, so to speak, changing our personality. Um, at the same time, there, there's a lot of um, uh, sort of medicines that people take. I think a lot about um, uh, uh, antidepressants. In some respects, that's what an antidepressant is about. You're, you're taking this antidepressant, and it's it's changing your mood. It's changing your emotions. It's changing how you feel and think across time. And so in some respects, that's sort of changing your biology, right? You're changing your biology, which is changing your behavior. But from a sort of everyday standpoint, if we're, if we're taking away the sort of outside influences on our biology and thinking about, look, I want to intentionally change my personality. I want to become more agreeable or I want to become more conscientious, something like that. Uh, there is some research suggesting that it can be done, but it requires a lot of effortful control. It takes a lot of practice. And, and here's the way I like to think about it. I know, Nick, you have a lot of uh, people who, who are in the sports world who, who listen to your content. Um, I think about it like a golf swing or a tennis stroke. Um, if you've been practicing a golf swing for some time or if you've been practicing your tennis stroke for some time and you and you get with an instructor who says, you know, I think if you do it this way, you'll have better results, right? You're trying to improve your golf stroke or your tennis stroke. And they say, okay, let's, let's do that. Let's, let's try it this way. You're not going to get it right, right away. You're not going to immediately make those adjustments and be consistent on those adjustments all the time. You're going to have to practice it and practice it and practice it. And what they, the old rule, I don't even know if this is true, but the old rule was you need to practice it at least twice as much as you've been doing it the old way, right? So if you've been doing it the old way for two years, you need to spend four years practicing it the new way to, for it to really sink in. I'm not sure if that's a true rule or not, but the point is you'll need a lot of concentrated effortful practice for, for that sort of new swing to become automatic. And I think it's the same thing with personality. The catch is with personality is we've been practicing our personality our whole lives. We've been practicing it since about, you know, basically since the time we were born, definitely by the time we were five years old, we've been trying out different behavioral strategies, trying out different emotional and thinking strategies to, to help solve the problems in our, in our daily lives. And those have become pretty automatic and pretty routine by the time we get into our teens or our 20s or our 30s or our 40s. And we say, you know, I'd really like to change myself. I'd really like to change in some way. Um, you've been practicing it a lot. So can you change those behavioral tendencies? The answer is yes but it's going to take a heck of a lot of work. And, and the reality is that most people aren't that committed to it. Now, there's some studies showing that, that with that right kind of commitment, you, you can do it. In fact, the whole enterprise of psychotherapy, in some respects, that's really what it's about. It's about really concentrated effort. But psychotherapy, to, to be fair, usually takes many months of actual practice uh, and, and work. And then you have to maintain it over some period of time to, to, to really get lasting change. So, so can personality change? I think the answer is yes, um, but it usually requires some pretty powerful interventions for, for that to happen. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that's definitely how I try to explain it too, because that effort, if we get into like, even like the cognitive aspect of it, all the attention and focus you're gonna have to put on 
do I act like this? You're gonna have to stop yourself immediately and then recalibrate. And that's just doing a lot. Like we can't always do that. And let's be real, we're very impulsive beings. Our brains go into fight or flight mode and they just act. So that's when you're gonna revert to like, if you're usually not very agreeable, and you get into an argument, I would like to say in the heat of the moment, you might say the messed up thing to your loved one or your friend or to someone who cut you off in the road versus like, you know what? Let me stop. Like, it's possible. Obviously, we all can say, hold up. Don't do it, Nick. But then again, it's like, that's what I've done. Like you said, since I was five years old, you know, going back to the sports analogy, I love that analogy because it's very true. I, I don't know the exact number either. I haven't heard that one with the twice as long. But actually, in a general sense, that makes a lot of sense because you have to relearn it first. So, mm -hmm. so it's, if it's two years, that two years is relearning it. And then four or the four year total, another two years of sustaining it. So right. in a sense, it makes sense that you have to do it way more than you, you haven't done it, you know? So that, that goes to a lot of it. So that being said, so those out there who, you know, can personally be changed, I'm going to put a, a maybe there, but it's on you to try, but let's go into our study. So I'm going to preface this with how it even came to be, because I feel pretty interesting story right like it wasn't intentional it's not like i said you know what let's make a study yeah I, I don't know if you fully recall it but i remember i was working in your lab i actually asked to be a volunteer i was not enrolled as a student at um fau florida atlantic university down in boca raton for those who are not familiar they actually just went to the the what semifinals yeah, everybody knows them now <laughs> yeah so right. if you're not familiar before they went to the semifinals the final four in basketball so basically, I live right down the street from there, and I was trying to further my knowledge. For those who aren't as familiar with my content, I'm big on just the multifaceted approach to psychology and performance. And I said, you know what? I want to learn. So I, I went to your office. I believe it was Nick Brown. And he told mm -hmm. me that it's for students, so I can't just come. So I had to apply as a non-degree-seeking student. And then I believe it was his birthday or your birthday. I'm not sure. I think it was his birthday. <laughs> I don't know. They had, but they had a cake. And basically you came down, we all had cake and then you were asking me some questions. And then Nick made a joke and said, oh, Nick can't eat any cake. You know, he's a sport guy, the in shape guy. And I was in much better form back then. But, um, and then you started talking about sports psychology stuff. And then I was like, you know what? I have an idea. And then I came back to you, I think with an idea of what well, we did a study on, I think athletic identity and mental toughness. And at this point, for those who hear me talk about personality now, I have to give you that, that honor that I really wasn't as, aware or into personality psychology as much like obviously I knew the basics from my undergrad but you got me on to like let me look deeper to it so you're like what if we looked at the personality aspect so long story long we end up doing the locating uh, mental toughness through personality factors and that was a whole new take on looking at how do you get athletes mentally tough how do you compare it to non-athletes so what was the process because I know my part I was mostly collecting data but you came up with the premise of bringing it all together. And I cite that study all the time. Obviously I'm on it, but you were the mastermind. Yeah. Well, I, I think one of the big ideas there is, you know, again, as we mentioned earlier, personality, academic personality psychologists, they tend to think about personality psychology as just these big five personality traits, or sometimes they take the big six, the hexaco model, which adds honesty, humility to those, to those other five I mentioned earlier. So if we're, if we're thinking about personality and those, those things, it made me wonder, there's all these other kinds of things that we talk about. Everyday language, we talk about people who are, how they're different, right? Uh, athletic coaches talk all the time about mental toughness. And, and that was a term, and that was the one that you used too, and, and that I thought, where does that really belong in this big five framework? It doesn't seem to sit in there very cleanly. And 
And so that's what I was curious about with this study. And that's why I was excited to, to meet you and, and, and to do the study with you, because um, it's just a really, it seems like a really critical question. Where is mental toughness in these sort of academic models of, of understanding how people are different from each other? And so uh, the big part, I think that the most, there are two critical parts of the study. One, the big part was collecting a lot of data on mental toughness. And we found a really cool measure of mental toughness to do that. Um, and then uh, the other part that I thought was really awesome about the study was your ability to go recruit so many athletes. We actually got division one athletes. I mean, these are like really serious top level athletes to participate in our study. I think the entire uh, volleyball team at the time uh, participated in the study. So we got some really awesome data from people who are really hard to get. If you've ever tried to collect data from division one athletes, you know how um, controlling coaches can be of their time and, and what their athletes are doing. And well, can so, I tap into um, that since I, well, yeah, yeah, I, I, please, saw yeah, yeah. It, I saw it firsthand because, you know, that was my job. I was getting the data. I made the, the outline of the study and I got the data. And basically, obviously, I, I won't say names, but there were certain teams where, like you said, they would give me the runaround of, well, do they have the time? And I was like, well, it's a five at most 10 minute questionnaire. They can do it in the courtesy of their own room. And they're like, okay, cool. So I really just needed their emails because that's what the volleyball right. team, she loved it. She, I came out there, they all signed a little sheet with other emails. I sent it to them all. They did it. It was done. But with some other teams, the more major sports, it was like pulling teeth. And it got to the point where I kept meeting up with them and getting stood up. I would get to the coach's office and be like, oh, they're not here. Or I'll get there and they're there, but they're in a meeting. So we started that study in 20, I want to say May, 2015. We didn't wrap it up for publication until what, 2018, and it got published in 2019. So if it's any testament to mental toughness for us, <laughs> that was three and a half years of really trying to collect this data because I forget the exact amount you wanted, but I was on your side of like, hey, whatever you need me to do, let's get it because the the non-athletes were not that hard because we had that, uh, what was it called, sonar, and they gave them like uh, a yeah. point or something like that. So mm -hmm. they were easy. We got the non-athletes like, water but basically i think some football players were in that the sonar we had some so that's the beauty it was still the same demographic so we got i would say at least a handful of uh athletes from the sonar uh part of the study versus me going directly so we got a handful of football players some basketball yeah. players i think i got a decent amount of the track team so i think it was a pretty diverse population that really you know we can speak to the what we're trying to find yeah, and I think the cool thing that we found was that basically you you can get mental toughness out of a big five or a big six hexaco measure of personality, but it's just not really straightforward. It's kind of hidden in some of the subscales and certain items that really are driving mental toughness. So it's really a combination of things that don't fall very neatly into these big five frameworks. So things that we found uh, that showed up there, like parts of conscientiousness, parts of extroversion, parts of agreeableness, parts of emotionality, or, or what's known as uh, neuroticism. Those kinds of things um, tend to be to be really critical components of mental toughness. But if you try to mash them all together, if you just try to say, well, okay, let's put extroversion and conscientiousness together, you don't end up getting mental toughness out of there. It ends up sort of obscuring uh, where, where mental toughness is located. So that was a really cool part about the study is that we basically found that with the right um, measurement tools with the right analytic approach, with the right set of scoring, you can get mental toughness out of these measures. But for the most part, it's really hard to, hard to find in there. It's not very clear in there. And from my point of view, why is that really important? That's really important because um, 
we know for athletes, mental toughness is so critical. So if you just give a standard big five measure to athletes, you're really not going to be getting at those key components, at least if you measure it and you score it in the way that you might typically score a big five measure. But if you use this kind of scoring and the kind of approach that we use, you can actually get mental toughness out of there and really understand just how tough is this athlete mentally. And and now in my work at Hogan, we work with a number of sports organizations, and you can bet that mental toughness is a really critical component of what they're looking for in their athletes. See, that, that speaks to so much what you said earlier about how it's complex. The fact that certain items from the same subfacet, like say extroversion, I know we saw some things with social self-esteem. So more so being able to perform and being uh, upbeat in front of audiences. So that's kind of like logical, like, yeah, but then we saw some that may have not been so explicit. And I think that's the beauty because I think there was what 17 or 18 specific items that you extrapolated. And the beauty is I use them personally. That's the great thing about the study is I can use this day to day. So I've been using these results with my clientele, whether it's been my athletes, law enforcement, military, and that's the beauty. I work with so many different demographics. So I've seen in real time. And that's why like the get off topic, but still on topic, the beauty of why it's important to have the, the research side of psychology as well as applied, because there's always this big battle. It's like three divisions, the neuro people, they're like, hey, we run the show of how the brain physically works. So we're first and foremost. But then in the psychology world, it's like, well, we do the experiments. And then the clinical world is like, we're doing the treatments. And people like me, the more in the applied practical, we're at the, I don't want to say the bottom of the rung, but we're unsung heroes to an extent <laughs> because now we get to put your guys' work into practice. And me personally, I love it. I, I can't speak for everyone on the applied side or the research side, but it's like, it has to be there. And this study since I've been on both sides of it, I guess that's a unique experience. I was on the data collection, the research side, as well as using it. And I've actually given it to some of my colleagues who are strength coaches, sport coaches, and they obviously don't understand to the degree as you or me would, but it's like, they see it as like, okay, it's more digestible, like you said, because there's 60 items. I think we used a 60, right? The Hexco 60. Yeah. So that's 60 items down to 18. It's not necessarily saying it's an end-all be-all, but I was like, okay, when you're talking to your athletes, Take these items and these questions into consideration to shape, hmm, is he or she performing this matter? Or they are performing this matter, but they're not performing another segment. And now you can really shape and they've been loving it. So this, I, I think there's more to this study we can extrapolate more from, but obviously we both have a lot going on, but I think this could even go further to like, as something to be a precursor to things, I might be speaking out of term, but like the NFL draft, uh, mm -hmm. even police, law enforcement. Cause like I said, I work with a lot of them now down here in Florida in one of the largest departments in the country, Broward Sheriff's Office. And I actually spoke with one of the uh, sergeants and he was talking about how they do the psyche valves and you know how they do it. It's usually clinical. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, they don't check off for schizophrenia. They don't check right. off for bipolar one. They don't check right. off for manic depression. So it's like, that doesn't mean you're still adequate. It just means, right. that's like saying in a physical sense, right? Okay, you don't have cancer. You don't have a broken bone. But does that mean you're ready for the NFL draft or you're ready right. for a marathon? No, it just means you're right. at least able to. So he actually said, I've never thought of it from the personality side of it. And you actually wrote an article about this. So I guess this is a perfect segue, the role of personality assessment for police, because you talked about implicit bias tests. And I know that's been the big rage since I'll say 2020, since the uh, George Floyd and all those mm -hmm. protests. So what is your take on how that can play a role on selecting police as well as performance? Yeah, so we work with quite a few police uh, departments actually here here at Hogan, um, and I think your point is exactly the right one, which is that 
so, so much of the work in the police area but relies on an assessment called the MMPI. Um, and the MMPI will sort of, it, it's useful for measuring uh, clinical disorders. Um, it's useful for, for identifying people who, who like you use an example, you know, uh, you know, they have a broken leg, so, okay, they can't play football. Um, okay. That, that seems, seems somewhat useful, but it's limited in use, right? It doesn't predict the kinds of things that we see when we see incidents with police officers, um, that, that make the news, which, you know, are happening. It seems like all the time these days, um, those things are more predicted by those more subtle personality traits. Those are more predicted by, you know, are, are you agreeable? Are you good at de-escalating situations? Uh, which has less to do with your, if you're schizophrenic, right? I mean, that's, that's not, uh, that doesn't really tell us much about your ability to do that. Whereas with a real personality assessment, we can actually have a good sense of, you know, to what degree are you good at de-escalating stressful situations? Uh, to what degree do you, uh, get excitable and and sort of uh, get very emotional when when the when when uh, the situation runs hot versus stay calm, uh, stay cool under pressure, and that's the kind of thing that that we do work with when we work with police departments. Um, election space is exactly that is identifying those personality traits that, that, and I think one of the realities for a lot of police work is I mean we we the sort of police work that makes the news is all the exciting. Um, fast-paced, high-speed chases, those kinds of things that are the stuff, you know, shootouts, those kinds of things make the news. Um, but a lot of police work is actually fairly mundane and very, fairly tedious, a lot of policy, a lot of process that needs to be followed. And uh, it turns out that you, if you don't have officers that are really good at following those kinds of things, that's when you run into these kinds of incidents. So um, personality is really critical for, for, for that kind of, um, well, for, for that kind of role, but for also for just about any kind of uh, job role. Well, that's, that's interesting because it's like, it seems so obvious, but it's not really a big practice. And like I said, that's one of the biggest agencies in the country. And if they're not really up to snuff, you can only imagine I work with even smaller agencies where there's like five people. So how can you, you know, use that for everyone we're not even doing it in the bigger agencies so it seems obvious like why not aren't we doing this because we there is an issue like my father actually was a law enforcement for about 30 32 years to be exact and he can attest to what is everything you said like there's a lot of low level stuff that isn't the the high speed chases the shootouts that gets ignored but that's what majority of job is so we need to make sure they can do that job exactly yeah so Another segment I want to talk about, because when I was going back to when I worked in your lab, you did a lot of work, um, you call it the situations lab. So I want to touch on the premise behind that, because that's what really blew my, my mind open, because I'm like, I never looked at personality in this light. And that's kind of what made me more intrigued and what almost shoot two years would be a decade, a decade later. And this is actually a part of my business model. Now I'm looking at personality more so than just cognitive performance or physical performance or mental skills and CBT type stuff. But I want to know what type of person you are preceding all of that, because that can shape how you go about your training or your performance. So one of the things I noticed in the situation lab, you had some stuff with social media. And the reason I want to talk about this is because let's be real. I would say around 2012 was like, in my opinion, you can correct me if you think a different year, but I think 2012 was like the turning point where social media went from something fun, interactive, connecting, to a business because that's when Facebook I think got acquired or was around that time and then Instagram came out Twitter was taken off as well so it's like how does social media play into our daily lives from a personality standpoint from a mental health standpoint because I remember back then I can recall I was just out of college undergrad 
it was like, oh, it's just social media or it's just Facebook. Don't take it so seriously. But now I could, I think personally, it does say a lot about yourself because I think why would you post it if it didn't resonate with something you care about? So what's your take on from your research as well as your your thoughts on that? Yeah. So uh, as you mentioned, you know, social media has, has been a really big, is a really hot topic, really big thing. It's been for for a long time in terms of how is it affecting mental health? How how is it affecting our personalities? Those kinds of things. And and I'm sort of agnostic on that view. There's sort of some people who think social media has been very detrimental and harmful to mental health. And some people would think, well, like it's not that big of a deal. It's just like the radio, how the radio came out, people were worried about how that's affecting the use and things like that. And so uh, I'm sort of agnostic on that point of view. But on the question about like what people are putting on social media, to what degree does what people put on social media reflect them and their personalities and who they are? Um, and, and to what degree can we assess personality from behavior and things that we see on social media? So it's it's a pretty interesting question. So it really depends on your point of view. And again, I take the point of view that the goal of personality assessment is to predict outcomes that we care about. Um, other people don't take that point of view. So the trait theorists or the, the, the trait approach people that I've talked about before really take the view of that per the goal of personality assessment is to sort of measure those things inside you to try to measure this personality inside yourself. Again, I don't think personality really exists inside you. I think you have motives and agendas and things that you want to go do and that and that's reflected in the stuff that you go to. Um, but these folks, uh, if you take that perspective, you take their perspective very seriously. One of the things that they have asked is to what degree can the things you tweet, can the things that you um, post on Facebook, the things that you like on Facebook, to what degree um, do those reflect you and uh, in, in who you are as a person? To what degree can we measure your personality from those um, sort of social media posts? And it turns out uh, some of the research has done some work to show that you can actually capture self-report personality traits pretty well. So if I if I have like 10 or 20 or 50 or 100 of things that you've liked on Facebook, I can build an algorithm that actually tells me pretty well what you're going to say about yourself on a personality assessment. Now, when this news first broke out, there was a lot of alarm. And by the way, just for full disclosure here, I was actually one of the reviewers on some of these studies when they got published, right? So I, I'm pretty, really quite familiar with these studies. Um, and, and I did recommend them for publication. So uh, I think they're really good work. Uh, I think um, the the sort of media coverage of the work has been a little overblown. And, and the reason for that is because we tend to think of our personalities as something that's deep and intimate and inside of ourselves. And the notion that a computer knows something deep and intimate about me that I've never shared with anyone uh, is a little bit uncomfortable. Um, and so, so I, I sort of get where, where that comes from. But the thing to keep in mind is that the things that the computer knows about you are the things that you've actually shared with it. So if you like posts on Facebook, like if you like posts about monster trucks uh, and somebody else likes posts about green tea, I mean, that says something about your attitudes. That says something about your interests, right? And is it any surprise to anyone that people who have different attitudes and different interests um, have different personalities? I, I don't think that's very surprising. So in some respects, you can think about the things that you like on social media as kind of like a personality assessment. So imagine taking a personality assessment where you're answering a bunch of questions about yourselves, the things that you like, the things that you like to do, the way that you think about the world. And then you're... On the other hand, you're clicking on things that you like on Facebook. 
Well, it's kind of the same process. So really, it shouldn't be that big of a surprise that those two things are connected because it's really the same thing. You're really saying, I like this, I don't like this. Um, and just in two different contexts, and those things are lining up. So I know a lot of people were sort of disturbed by this knowledge and news, but I think at the end of the day, it's really just another way of saying, yeah, the things that you prefer are the things that you prefer. The things that you're interested in are the things that you're interested in. Now, from my point of view, what's really valuable about this is uh, the fact that um, we are self-presenting all the time, right? So we self-present when we take a personality assessment. We self-present when we're on social media. We're always trying to present a view of ourselves that we want other, a way that we want other people to think about us. And I think that's what really shows up clearly in this research is that people are always self-presenting. They're self-presenting on social media. They're self-presenting in everyday life. And those things uh, tend, to, tend to line up together, which, is, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah. So the reason, yeah, that makes a lot of sense because the reason I even asked that, because I know personally, and this is just me, how I look at things. I'm very analytical to an extent. And basically I would notice that, let's say, for example, a certain opinion that's shared amongst a group of people, I could almost predict, like say predicting behaviors, outcomes. I could almost know, like set my watch to it, what they were going to say to an extent, like obviously it's not predicting exactly what they'll say, but I can see if they agree with these posts, these topics, these tweets, these statuses, they probably agree with these aspects of whatever's going on in the world. Right. It even got to the point where I would get confused on whose page I was on. I was like, oh, I'm on such and right. such page. But I was like, oh no, it's not. And it, that's the reason I asked that because personally, since I am in the psych world, I look at things, I, I would say a lot differently because I've been tainted with the knowledge of the, the curse of knowledge, right? <laughs> So it's basically like, I'll see someone post and it'll be like, if you share this, you probably, like if we go to personality traits specifically, like talk about agreeableness or neuroticism, that's probably the biggest one I say you can kind of maybe extrapolate because when people were more prone to share our thoughts, even if the emotionally or even personal ones that I would say maybe the world shouldn't hear. But then again, going back to the mental health of like, is it good or bad? I would argue, I don't think it's the end of the world if you share something personal because you must have been comfortable enough to share it. But maybe that's a form of expression that you wouldn't have got 40 years ago. Matter of fact, let's say 30 years ago, where you couldn't even talk to someone unless you had their phone number. You can literally talk to someone from Japan you've never met, yeah. probably will never meet ever, and invent, and they can look at your page and say, oh, they identify with me and vice versa. Yeah. Well, I think that's the big... Uh you know, thing to think about with all this stuff. We can talk about a lot of the problems with social media. We can talk about the problems with TikTok. We can talk about the problems with um, things like chat GPT and AI systems. Mm. Um, and, and that's all true, right? There are real risks and real concerns and real potential threats from these kind of systems. But at the same time, these systems also offer a tremendous number of benefits, right? We can talk about, you know, like I've got my, you know, my, my phone here, right? And all the things that it's tracking and all the information that it's keeping. And and I could get rid of my phone, right? I could say, that's it. I'm not going to use this phone anymore. But I would, what would I be giving up? What are those kind of benefits I would be giving up when I do that? So um, I think with any kind of new technology, whether it's social media or AI or whatever it may be, uh, we have to keep in mind that, yeah, there are there are threats and there are dangers and, and, and risks associated with that. But at the same time, there is also a whole bunch of benefits. And if you want to uh, get those benefits, um, get value from those benefits, then then you sort of have to lean in to that new technology. Actually, I'm, I'm working on a book. It'll be my first like official, I've written eBooks, but this will be my first official book called There's No More Sabertooth Tigers. And the premise is about 
psychology, social psychology, a little bit of evolutionary psychology, but all the aspects, how I practice in my daily life as my own philosophies, as well as the research of how these all intertwine to make us who we are and perform. And one of the terms I use in the book, I call it the Alaska Russia effect. And that's kind of what I'm getting at when you said, okay, you have this phone that tracks these data, the location. I have Apple Watch. I don't know if you have Apple Watch, your, your biomarkers even. So they know for the last, I have this for two years. So for the last two years, they know sleep cycles. So it's a trade-off because if you think about Alaska, Russia, right? For those who aren't geographically inclined, the the furthest point of Russia is right across from Alaska. I think it's right. before the Bering Strait, you know, went down, the waters went up. You could basically walk there. But it's like if you go far enough one way, you say you're on this side of the the stance, if it's the pro or con, you're gonna end up on Alaska. And then vice versa, <laughs> if you're on Alaska, you go far enough the other way, you're gonna end up in Russia. And I think this is a perfect segue to an article you wrote. I read a few of them about personality because this is the perfect example of the Alaska Russia effect, I think, because we live in America. For those that aren't in America, America is a very bipartisan country. There's multiple uh, different parties, political parties, but Democratic and Republic are the main two. And if the president nomination is up, it's probably going to be one of those two. So with that being said, I see the Alaska Russia effect there because I see the ideals, some of the personality types or traits from say a more left-leaning person versus a more right-leaning person. They might present in different ways, but it's like, if you get far enough to any extreme, like I said, you're gonna tip over to the other side. So you wrote some articles about our former president, not necessarily critiquing him per se, but the personalities of the type of traits that would be seen in a person who would nominate this or co-sign this candidate. So what's your take on that? Share with us. How you went about yeah, that. so there's a couple of things. I think you're totally right that the it's I and I think even Freud pointed this out as well, which is that 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 people on the extremes are actually ended up being more similar uh, than you really think. I think a really clear example of this is sort of love and hate, right? If you think about um, you know that they're both very strong emotions, um, and that in some respects they actually you know think about. Uh, it, in some respects, you often hate the thing that you loved, you know, for some period of time, right? You love this thing and now you hate this thing, right? It could be an object. It could be another individual, right? If you had a long relationship with someone and now, right? That, that those two things are actually much closer than we might, we might actually think. And I think that's the same kind of phenomenon there. Um, in, in thinking about political candidates, one of the things that's really interesting is the, the tendency to, um, to, for similarity to sort of rule the day. And this is also true in the workplace, by the way, when, when we look at who we're hiring and who we like to hire and, and, and who we, who decides a good fit for the job. So much of that is defined by similarity. And there's lots of ways you can define similarity. Similarity sometimes is based on how we look and how we dress and all of those kinds of things, sort of superficial features, but there's also the psychological similarity. And typically the attraction between similarity isn't in the sort of classic personality traits, like I've talked about before, but it tends to show up much more in values, right? If we share the same values, we tend to like each other more. And if we like each other more, uh, then we that's that's tend to be who we who we want to hire, or in the case of political candidates, who we want to vote for. And so one of the things that we found was that people who who had a values profile that would seem very similar to Donald Trump's values profile, right? So if you say, okay, what are the things that Donald Trump values? And then you find people who share those values, that that was highly predictive of support for Donald Trump. And what was really interesting about that was 
But that's actually the case even among at the time when we did the study, even among Republicans, right? So if you just if you eliminate all Democrats from the study, because you might say, well, obviously Republicans and Democrats have different values. So of course, if Republicans voted for Donald Trump and Democrats didn't, of course you would find this distinction. But what was really interesting is if we said, no, no, just among Republicans, because at the time Donald Trump was a pretty controversial nominee, even among Republicans. Uh Republicans who shared the values that were more similar to Trump's were far more likely to prefer Donald Trump as their candidate than Republicans who who did not. So, um, and it's not just a Donald Trump phenomenon. It's not just a, a Republican phenomenon. This is also true for different Democrats as well, I'm sure. But the point there is that shared values is really what drives liking. Uh, right. If we say, well, we're similar in values, then we like each other more. And then if we like each other more, that's who we vote for. And, and the implications are, are, are much broader reaching than just in politics, although I think in politics, clearly there's a lot of consequences associated with, with who wins those, those elections. Um, but in, in everyday jobs, um, there, there was an article in The Washington Post not very long ago looking at how NFL coaches are hired um, and how. Um, and I and I did write a blog post a little bit about this. This was actually prior to the Washington Post article, but in, anyway, uh, I don't think they copied me. But uh, the, <laughs> the point is um, uh, that NFL coaches are typically hired as a, as a result of a job interview process. And this is something that we're critical on at Hogan all the time. The job interview process is all about one thing, and that's about liking. It's not about your ability. It's not about your knowledge. It's not about your background and, and, and how smart you are and how capable and your experiences. The job interview, to win the job interview, if you want to get a job, you have to get the interviewer to like you. Now, there's a whole bunch of strategies you can use, but the most powerful strategy is to get them to think you're similar. If we are from the same background, if we're similar, we share the same ideas, the same values, then we're going to like each other. You're going to like me more and you're going to hire me. That's that's how to win the job interview. It's not about how much knowledge or experience do I have. And that's what you think it's about. Many people think that that's what the job interview is about. I got to go in there and impress them with my knowledge and my experience and my talent. Now, they don't care about that. What they, the most powerful predictor, sadly, right? And I, I do mean this is sadly, is, is how similar you are because that that tells us how, how much they're going to like you. And uh, that's why we we prefer personality assessments so much is because it's not about how much we like somebody. It's about an objective view of how good of a fit are they for the job? Do they have the right skill sets? Do they have the right behavioral strategies to perform well in this particular role? And in the case of NFL coaches, and then the, the, the article was all about why are there so few black coaches in the NFL? I mean, the player base is like 60 or 70 percent uh, black in the NFL, and, and um, yet the coaches is like, 90% white. And it's like, well, why is that? And the answer really has to do with owners and, and the ownership. So um, if you if you own an NFL team, or I mean, you know what the NFL typical owner, NFL owner looks like, it's typically a, a very wealthy white guy. And um, many of the think about where these very wealthy white guys grew up versus think about a, a black assistant coach in the NFL who's applying for a head coaching job. Do you think they grew up and went to the same country clubs? Do you think they have the same kind of experiences? Do you think they dress the same? And in fact, that's one of the incredible quotes in that article in the Washington Post was one of the owners of an NFL team who hired a, a young white guy to be their coach said, how could I not hire him? I loved him. He dresses just like I do. 
Now think about that. How what does dressing like the owner of the team have to do with your ability to coach? The answer nothing. is absolutely nothing. <laughs> But it doesn't matter, right? When it comes to those interviews, unfortunately, uh, liking is the only thing that matters. And liking is so heavily driven by similarity. And that's the fundamental problem with, with hiring black coaches in the NFL is that the people who are doing the hiring don't see black coaches as similar to them. And it's not, okay, maybe it's because some of them are racist, maybe. But I don't think it's really because they're racist. I think it's just because they do the interviews and they do them legitimately. And they find that in their conversations with the white guys, they had a similar experience. They shared a similar thing and they went, Ooh, I like that guy. I don't know why, but I like that guy. Whereas with the, with the black coaches, they don't have as, as many overlapping experiences. And so that's why I think it's so important to take out these job interviews. They're just that, cause that's what they're all about. What you want to do is you want to get a, a real serious uh, evaluation of job candidates based on their qualifications, based on their experiences, um, based on whether the players would play for them. How about that as a criteria? You know, who do players want to play for? That seems like it would be pretty valuable information. Um, but that's that's not how it's done today. See, that just goes to how our brain, we're just so cognitively biased subconsciously that, like you said, you made a good point because race gets brought up a lot. And I can see that side of it, obviously, being a Black man. And I get that in psychology is no super black and white answer but that's why I like your your view on this it was a good take because it brings that light of okay if I'm more similar because there might be a lot of similarities beyond how he dressed or how he talked but it's like that's the barrier of entry if mm -hmm. the coach doesn't have at least that like you said he could be the most qualified can command the room his, his, his constituents his teammates or a players can follow lead but I didn't like how he wore his, his shoes Right. <laughs> and it right. sounds far fetched, but it really isn't because, like I said, I've been that's why being in the sport world to the level I've been, I've been to the literally, I work with Olympians, pro athletes, UFC fighters, NFL, MLB, yeah. this goes on. And I can say I've seen some of this. So well, giving that insight makes a lot of sense. Well, and what, what's amazing about it in the sports world is it's actually one of the fairest, one of the things I love about sports this is one of the most fairest and objective, like, managers and coaches they don't care what skin color you are or what gender you are or any of that stuff they can you play can you score touchdowns can you put the ball in the hoop can you hit the ball over the fence can you throw strikes like that's all that matters in the sports world and they don't care they will put any player out there if it if it's going to help them win but when it comes to coaches it's a totally different view Right. They have a totally different approach. They, they sort of lose the objectivity. And I think part of it is because it's hard, much harder to quantify the impact of a coach than it is to quantify the impact of a player. We can very easily quantify. Does this can this player make the throws? Can this player run the 40 yard dash? Can this player, you know, catch the ball when we throw it and make the plays happen? Uh, whereas with, with coaches, it's sort of like, oh, it's hard to say, is it really the coach or not? And that's why, that's why they, they get away with this when it comes to coaching hires, or they would never get away with it when it comes to, um, to, to hiring players, because the team would just get crushed and lose if they were just hiring who, who they liked the most. That's a good point. I, I know you're a former baseball guy and I know the Rays right now, they're breaking records. Mm -hmm. They've won 13. I think at the time of this recording, it might have changed before this will get out. But 13, and that's the record for the most uh, wins in a row at the start of a season. And the reason I bring this up only because it speaks to the being objective from the player personnel standpoint, because they have, I think, over the last decade, they've had 
the bottom 20 or bottom 10% of salaries yeah. or payrolls, I should say. Mm -hmm. So they spend a lot of money on getting the right people versus, you know, those objective markers, like you said. So they did the polar opposite of what you're talking about. And going statistically speaking, they've made the playoffs consecutive times. They went to the World Series one of those years. And it just shows when you look at, like, we're scientists at heart. Obviously, social science or personality is a different aspect. But at the end of the day, we're still objectifying. I always call it making the intangible tangible, which I think is a very hard job to do. And you yeah, you literally succeed right. in it with Hogan's assessment. You guys literally pride yourselves on making these, these things quantifiable. And that's why it's like everything you just gave us, for those who's listening, I'm sure that'll cost a pretty penny at Hogan's assessment. So that's very <laughs> appreciative. I actually didn't even think of it like that. But going back to my point is like, I think it's very imperative that we use these measures. And I think it's something that the sports psych world or just the performance psych, whether it be sport, tactical, dancing, whatever it is, they need to look at that more because the sports psych world is kind of behind too. Because what I've learned, personality comes up, but it's not really a big thing. It's mostly CBT type stuff, which is great because you want to change the framework of thinking thought process. So that's a big part of it. But I would argue this should get more light on that side of the spectrum. And that's just something I'm biased on, I guess. And you put the battery in my back for it. And I appreciate it because I it separates me. When I go to co potential contracts, I bring up personality stuff and they're like, oh, I've never thought of that. And I'll show them the study we did, even though I'm not a full on researcher, but I have that under my belt and they'll say, oh, interesting. And they'll like it because the second half Let's actually go into that. I, I know we talked about it. The second half, I wasn't a part of that for, for clarification. What went into that part with uh, Dr. Yankov? Uh, oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, that part of the study. Uh, yeah, so in that part of the study, we actually collected some data at um, uh, at Hogan where, where we were able to look at how does mental toughness actually associate with the Hogan measures? Now it's one of part of the reason we got interested in that was because I had this suspicion. So Hogan sort of measures personality a little bit differently from the classic big five perspective. One of one of their bars, uh, uh, scales is called ambition, which is really getting at that sort of drive, that competitiveness, that wanting to win, which seemed an awful lot like uh, mental toughness. And in fact, that's one of the things we found was that actually um, you you see that that um, in Hogan among Hogan's assessments, that's one of the most powerful predictors of of mental toughness is that ambition scale. And so I think that's one of the things that sort of makes our approach at Hogan unique is that um, we're not trying to measure traits, right? And that's the big five sort of approach is trying to say what are the traits that need to be measured. That's not Hogan's approach. Hogan's approach is what are the outcomes we care about? And let's build scales. Let's build psychometrics that actually predict those outcomes. And of course, in the business world, in the sports world, uh, performance, uh, driving performance, pushing for results, desire for leadership positions, success in leadership positions is, is really critical. And so our assessments are designed to assess those kinds of qualities. Right. And, and I yeah. think that's what was nicely illustrated by the study. Yeah, because that part, like I said, I wasn't a part of that one. But when I saw that part, I'm like, oh, interesting, because going back to what you do at Hogan, I looked into some of the things you talked about with the eight personality types, and we don't obviously have to get into all of them. But how you broke it down, like you said, it's not the traditional conscientiousness, extroversion. It's 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 going into the point of, like, say, ambition looks deeper into, like, what are these aspects that make us perform? So one of them I know you mentioned was the rebel that was a pretty good one. I, I think I, I identify with that a lot because I'm an entrepreneur and then you talk about the marketer, proliferation. So it's like the way you broke it down makes sense because it goes more into how does it make it practical? That's that's literally my model. Like I want to make it yeah. applicable to what you do. 
So that was great. So anyone out there who's interested, uh, look into Hogan Assessments, look into Dr. Sherman's work. So before we wrap it up, I always like to end with two things. I know people like to do three. I'm weird. I, just, I think two is fine. So usually what I do is like two things to take on that they can put into effect in their daily life. It's not like advice more so, but something from your work, your your book of tricks that can they can apply right now to their daily life. But I'm going to twist it a little bit for you. So I would say two things that they can apply to their daily life, put it right into practice as an outcome to predict behavior from a personality standpoint, from what you know, like something they can do, describe, because a lot of people take away, like say, what type of personality I am, what traits I have, but two traits, I guess, or two types or whatever it may be that can be like, oh, this is a predictor for X. And they can say, make that make sense for their everyday life. So I guess I put you in kind of a thinking position. Yeah, too. yeah. <laughs> well, no, look, I, I think the most practical thing people can can do from, from the kind of work or learn from the kind of work that we've done um, is, I guess the, the, the thing I would say is that we try to make talent evaluation an objective process. You used a great line, which by the way, I'm going to steal, uh, making the intangible tangible. I mean, that's hey, go really ahead. Um, <laughs> the thing that we do at Hogan is, is we try to take those interpersonal skills, um, the, those those characteristics, those everyday behavioral characteristics that we see, and, and we try to help organizations and people and individuals understand how to best utilize those, how, how to utilize those inside your organization, how to utilize those inside yourself if you want to advance in your career. Um, but the key aspects, I think, of that are, number one, is accuracy, is, is how or we, the term we actually use is validity. How valid is the tool that you're using? How valid is the method you're using right now? Think about the method you're using right now to evaluate talent. Is it your own judgment? Is it, um, is it your evaluation of resumes? What are you using right now to evaluate talent? And how accurate is that method compared to, say, something that's scientifically validated like our assessments? I would put our assessments up against just about any method there is out there for evaluating talent. I think our assessments can beat it. Um, so that's number one is think about the, the accuracy uh, of your talent evaluation tools. And then the other thing to think about is the fairness. Uh, and, and that's the big one that I was hitting on earlier with the NFL coaches is that so many ways that we evaluate talent today or evaluate individuals in general are just totally unfair. They are not objective. They are designed to create uh, in many respects, they're they're designed to create disparities um, uh, in in gender or on ethnicity or or religion or or whatever it is. So, um, I would encourage people to find an ev talent evaluation tool that is fair. And again, uh, our personality assessments, uh, really well designed personality assessments, are built so that fairness is is essential. Right in our assessments, we don't see gender differences, we don't see ethnic differences, we don't see differences based on sexual orientation, we don't see differences based on age. So, uh, if you want to have a really uh, accurate and fair evaluation of your talent, um, what method is the best one to use? I would argue that you should go for something objective and scientifically grounded, like like an assessment like ours. Um, and and I think that's really the best piece of advice I can give for people out there. Uh, if, if that's something you're wanting to do, if you're wanting to evaluate the talent around you, um, think seriously about using something that's very accurate, very valid and, uh, very fair to all candidates. Oh, well put, well put. 
So I'll call that a prideful plug, not a shameful plug, a prideful plug, because I've, I know his work. So I'm going to attest to that too. So with that being said, before we wrap up, uh, do you have anything you want them to check out, whether it be social media, the site, Hogan's assessment, or do you have your own site or anything you got going on, plug it right now, and then we'll wrap it up. Yeah, sure. So um, people are always willing to, or are always welcome to connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm very easy to find because my name is uh, pretty unique. So I'm very easy to find on on LinkedIn. Uh, you might also be interested in our own podcast, which of course, Nick has been a guest on our podcast called the Science of Personality Podcast. You can check that out at thescienceofpersonality.com the or just about any podcast service out there. Uh, we have new content every two weeks about the latest things happening in the personality world. Um, otherwise, uh, if you're interested in the kinds of work we do, you can visit our website at www.hoganassessments.com. And, and I would say thanks again, Nick, so much for having me today. Uh, thank you for coming through. This was great. I think a lot was said, so they have a lot to go into so they can divide this up however they see fit. But thanks, guys, as always, for tuning in. It's been a pleasure. And as always, get your mind right.